Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm joined by award-winning author, Emily Nagoski. She wrote the New York Times bestselling books, Come As You Are and the Come As You Are workbook. She is also co-author of Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. Emily has a master's in counseling and a PhD in health behavior, both from Indiana University. She combines sex education with stress education in her work to teach women to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies. She lives in Massachusetts with two dogs, a cat, and a cartoonist. The theme of this show is Sex on the Brain. We're going to explore the brain mechanisms that underlie sexual response in a way that will help you to better understand your own sexuality and why it might be really different from that of your partner. We're going to change the way that you think about sex and what's normal. We'll also be discussing the keys to having more pleasurable sexual experiences, how to prevent stress from throwing your sex life off track, and how to improve your body image. I can't wait for this conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Emily, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hello, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. I have read your work and followed you for a really long time, so it's a thrill to finally have the chance to meet you <laughs> and, and catch up. So to get started, I always like to ask my guests to tell us a little bit about their professional journey. So how did you get into the wild, wonderful world of sex education in the first place? I'm glad you asked this question because nobody has the same path. And I got here by accident. Absolutely. I was a big nerd in high school. Surprise. And so I knew when I got to college that I was going to be going to grad school for something. I had no idea for what, but I knew I needed some volunteer work on my resume to make me look like a good candidate for grad school starting like the very first semester. So a guy on my floor was pre-med and he said, come be a peer health educator with me. And I was like, I like health. Why not? So I did. I got trained to be a peer health educator, but my favorite part was the sex education. You know, we got trained to do stress and nutrition and physical activity and all that kind of stuff, sleep. But my favorite thing was the sex education, condoms, contraception, and consent basically is what it was. And in addition to the prevention work I was doing, I gradually added sexual violence response and like answering a crisis hotline and accompanying survivors to the hospital for examinations. And though my degree is in psychology with minors in cognitive science and philosophy, and I do love the brain stuff and I still use it all the time, the work I was doing as a sex educator made me like who I am as a person in a way that none of my academic work, even the research I was doing in a neuropsych lab, none of that made me feel whole in the way that seeing someone's life change right before my eyes with a little bit of sex education could. So that's the path I chose. Um, got a master's degree in counseling with the idea that I was going to be a therapist. I actually was supervised by Cindy Graham and John Bancroft at the Kinsey Institute Sex Clinic that existed at the time, which is one of those experiences I will spend the rest of my life trying to deserve. Like It was so it was life-changing, that experience. But part of the way it changed my life is it taught me that I am not a therapist by temperament. 
I am an educator. I, I don't have the magical thing where people, you can sit in a room and go, mm-hmm. hmm, tell me more about that. What was that like for you? I like, I, I don't have it, but I am a woman who enjoys being in charge of stuff. And so I went on to get a PhD still at Indiana in health behavior in what is now the School of Public Health. And I was teaching a class called Women's Sexuality at Smith College, which is the alma mater of Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan. So imagine you've got 187 future Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan, and my favorite, Julia Child, like pushing you really hard, challenging you to be the best teacher you possibly can to justify what they're prone to hear as essentialism when you talk about biology and be like, no, let's put the biology in context. So this like really intense semester, uh, at the end of it, my last question on the final exam was just tell me out of all this science, what's one important thing you learned? And more than half of my 187, Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem, Julia Child, they said, I learned I'm normal. Just because I'm different from other women doesn't mean I'm broken. And so that was when I was grading my final exams. You've probably had this experience. You're sitting in your office grading your final exams. You know, it's not usually like this. I was grading with tears in my eyes, feeling like something really important had happened in the class. And that's the day I decided to write Come As You Are. And a mere four and a half years later, and now here I am. Well, thank you for sharing that. I can relate to so much of what you said because I'm also an accidental sex educator. You know, it was nothing I ever planned to do. Also took me about four and a half years to write my book. And I get that response of this made me feel normal for the first time a lot from students, from readers of my work. And it's such an important thing that it's what motivates me and, and keeps me going and makes me realize that my work has a positive impact on others because most of us just never got the sex education we needed or deserved. And to have folks who can go out there and, and fill in those gaps and give people that, that feeling of I'm normal for the first time in my life, it's really powerful. So I appreciate the work that you do and your commitment to it and your awesome and amazing books. So speaking of which, let's dive into that. Something you talk a lot about in your books and in the talks that I've seen you give is the dual control model of sexual response. And I'm a huge fan of it because I think it really helps us to understand why there's so much individual variability across people in sexual response. And this model was developed by a couple of Kinsey Institute researchers a few decades ago, but you really helped to popularize it and bring it into the mainstream with Come As You Are. And I just love the way you describe it because you make it so accessible. So can you tell us a little bit about it for people who might not be familiar with this model? How does it work? Yes. And the history is like, there's a reason why it's income as you are. John Bancroft was one of my clinical supervisors and Eric Janssen was one of my dissertation co-chairs. And they together with Eric in the lead developed the dual control model with the shocking idea. What if how sex works in the brain is how everything else works in the brain, right? With pairings, couplings of excitatory impulses and inhibitory impulses, accelerators and brakes, the gas pedal and the foot brake. And they started doing survey research and they realized when they did the analysis that there really are separate processes 
one that responds to sex-related stimuli, and then one that responds to potential threats. And it's the idea of the break that I find really transforms people's understanding. So I remember the day I learned about it. And like my brain exploded and I haven't been able to find it ever since. Like everything <laughs> has been different since that day in 1999 is how long I have been teaching this stuff. It's that important to me. Basically, it's called the dual control model. So there's two parts you can tell by the name. And the first part is the accelerator or the gas pedal, which notice it's running all the time, noticing anything sex related in the environment, everything that you see, hear, smell, touch taste, or crucially, think, believe, or imagine that your brain codes as, okay, so that's a sex-related stimulus. And then it sends the turn-on signal that many of us are familiar with. And it's functioning all the time, including right now. Here we are talking about sex. You may be thinking of like, what counts as a sex-related smell? Hmm. And the fact that you're having that thought counts as just a little bit of turn on signals. There's a little bit of turn on happening right now. And at the same time, fortunately, in parallel, your break is noticing all the good reasons not to be turned on right now. <laughs> Everything that you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, think, believe, or imagine that your brain codes as a potential threat and it sends the turn off signal. So your level of arousal at any given moment is the balance of how much the ons are turned on and how much the offs are turned off. And What's so powerful, in addition to recognizing that people vary in the sensitivity of their brakes and accelerator mechanisms, and also in what those mechanisms respond to in the world, but also when people are struggling, even though most of the like mainstream sex advice is very focused on like add stimulation to the accelerator, it turns out when people are struggling, it's rarely because there's not enough stimulation to the accelerator. It's because there's too much stimulation to the brake. And it is so powerful for people to know that like they're normal and healthy, but there's a lot happening in their life, like stress, depression, anxiety, overwhelm, exhaustion, repressed rage. We've all got it. Body image stuff, trauma stuff, relationship, strife. You're just literally you're worried about the last dish in the sink. That stuff is hitting the brakes. And if you can get rid of that stuff, your brake will be freed up and then your accelerator can do what it's already doing. And I think that's beautifully described and I think explains why this is so important for understanding how, if you want to improve your sex life, what you need to do. You know, it's usually not just changing right. one little thing, you know. I wish it were as simple as like lingerie and candles and role play and porn. Like that would be so much simpler for people. But it turns out it's, you know, improve your relationship with your own body enhance the erotic trust in your relationship, heal your trauma and the sex negative messages that you were raised with. It's a lot. And, you know, right. as you're talking about all of this, it's got me thinking about this whole pandemic situation that we've been living in and how that's affected people's sex lives and relationships. And I've conducted a lot of research on this. And one of the things that really struck me is that people were all over the map in terms of what happened in the bedroom during this really challenging time. You know, some people said they didn't experience any changes. Other people totally lost desire and sexual behavior practically disappeared. And yet others experienced increases in desire and became more sexually active than ever. And so it's got me thinking about, you know, 
how the dual control model can potentially help to explain why this situation and why stress has these divergent effects on people's sex lives. You know, I have to imagine that the people who experience the most negative impact were the ones who were probably really high on inhibition. You know, that break was just locked. And for the people who didn't experience much change or maybe where their sexual activity levels actually increased, I have to suspect they're probably higher on excitation and low in inhibition. And so for these people, if they have more time on their hands, that might create more sexual opportunities. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that variability in the sensitivity of the brakes and accelerator mechanisms and also variability in life history, which changes how your brain responds to different stimuli. We know that people who had an existing history of trauma, abuse, or neglect, a high adverse childhood experiences score, for example, were more adversely impacted by the pandemic because their brain was already ready to recognize the danger of the situation. And so like the brakes get slammed on and their anxiety level is higher and the trauma impact of the pandemic is higher for those folks. So part of it is just the inherent sensitivity of the mechanism. Part of it is how your life history has changed it. And also part of it is the circumstances that you're currently in because people were impacted really differently by the pandemic. For me, being mostly at home with my husband, who is my favorite person on earth. Like I was locked in the house with my best friend and my jocks. Like, oh no, how <laughs> terrible. I, I was stressed out because as a person with a public health background, I was constantly like looking at the numbers and doing epidemiology stuff in my head. And like, I was stressed out because of that. But my life, no one that I love died. Only a handful of people that I know got sick. Only one person that I know was hospitalized. I didn't lose my job and neither did my husband because we are both self-employed. <laughs> Can't lose our jobs unless we fire ourselves, which we <laughs> might do one day. That's another story. But so like that pandemic story is not the same as someone who you and or your spouse lost a job. You and or your spouse are not able to let the kids go to daycare or school and had to be parenting all the time. Plus, there was all the social unrest that happened during the pandemic. There was like violence by cops against Black people in America and mass waves of protests. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget that there was also the, I don't know, attempt to overthrow democracy. Small shit. Small shit happening. Does that create a context where your brain really is inclined to interpret a sensation as fun, safe, sexy, and pleasurable? Or does it create a context where your brain is vigilant and on high alert kind of all the time? If you're paying attention, it, it was stressful and hitting the brakes. But there was a lot of variability in people's experiences. And so it makes sense to me that a whole bunch of people would have had their sex lives drop away. I remember, though, at the beginning of the pandemic, there were I, I kept getting asked, was there going to be a pandemic baby boom? Mm -hmm. And I was like, have you read Come As You Are? <laughs> Do you know about the dual control model? Because like it's context and it's the breaks. And no, people are not going to feel more interested in having sex with a person whom they cannot escape. <laughs> yep. 
So true. I, yeah, I got that question a million times as well. And, you know, if they would have just come to us first, you know, we could have saved a lot of <laughs> inaccurate headlines from yeah. going out there. But since we're on the subject of sex on the brain, another topic I often hear you talk about is this idea of arousal non-concordance, mm-hmm. which is basically the fancy scientific term for there being a mismatch between your genital arousal and your psychological feelings of arousal. And we know that people of any gender, any sexual orientation can experience this mismatch at times, but we know from the research that it tends to be more common among women than it is among men, that they're more likely to be in that situation where maybe they have a genital response, but they don't feel aroused, or they might see that arousal as unwanted. And it's also more likely for women to be in a situation where they feel aroused, but they're not having the genital response Mm -hmm. accompanying it. So why is that? Why does this arousal non-concordance happen? And why are women more likely to experience it? We don't know why. So I spent my pandemic doing a an update and revision of Come As You Are. And one of the things that happened in the science between when it was originally, when it went to press in 2014 and 2020 was that it became clearer and clearer that really it's straight women for whom this is true less than for women who identify as anything other than straight. And also, there's a lot of individual variability. So for some women, they have quite a strong match, generally, between their genital response and their level of experienced arousal. And then for some people, they just don't. And there there are like little inklings in the research of beginning to understand how variability and sensitivity of the brakes and accelerator may be involved. And as a population, I hate saying sentences like this out loud because it's too easy to turn it into, well, men just want sex more than women do, and women are more inhibited than men are. And that is not what I'm saying. The main thing to know is that there is a lot of variability across populations, but if you average the scores of accelerators, the sexual excitation system of 100 men, that that average score will be higher than the average score of 100 women on the same thing. And if you average together the scores on the inhibitory factors survey of 100 men, that score is going to be lower than the average score of 100 women. That just because a score is true about a population doesn't mean a score is true about any specific individual within that population. I'm not five foot four. The average height of American women is five foot four. Am I abnormal? No. The average is not a description of the individuals in the population. (laughs) So, but I say that because, uh, some of the predictability of this happens more to women than it does to men might be because of population level differences and sensitivities of the accelerators and the brakes. Okay, so first of all, no one that I've ever talked to about this has been like, so you're saying that men have really quite a very significant relationship, a correlation between their genital response and their perceived arousal. That's really like, why? Why are they like that? Why aren't they more like the women with with less reliable correlation between their genital response? Nobody says that. Everybody's like, so what's wrong with women? Which that all that right there is the patriarchy, and that's the reason why people struggle to understand it is because we're basically like because of the ugh, patriarchy, um, we consider men to be the default, 
and everybody else is just a broken version of a man. So the extent to which a woman is different from what's true for men is the extent to which women are broken. If you're different, you are broken. So I think if we can expand our acceptance of the reality that this happens and everyone who has ever been a 13-year-old with a penis knows that like if the wind blows in the wrong direction, you get an erection. If you're sitting in the back of the bus and there's a vibration, you get an erection. If your teacher's shirt moves, you get an erection because you have all this testosterone in your body's like, I don't know what to do. Like that's arousal non-concordance when you want to get an erection at night when you're doing things and the erection's not there, that's arousal non-concordance. And then you wake up the very next morning with an erection when it's nothing but an inconvenience, that is arousal non-concordance. When we can normalize it for everybody, we make space for the ways that it happens to people who are deemed atypical and actually, they're totally normal. And we take away the, the most dangerous thing about arousal non-concordance is when we use it as an excuse for taking advantage of people. Well, you, you said no, but your body said yes. Bodies don't say yes. <laughs> Bodies say, okay, so that's a sex-related stimulus. And the person says, sure, okay, sex-related stimulus. And now let's put it into a larger context and assess if it's wanted or liked, because those are not the same thing. Yeah, I, I think that's all very well explained and put. And the way that you frame it, I think, is really important for shifting the the narrative in the conversation. We all experience arousal non-concordance at different points, and you know what what's happening genitally isn't always a reflection of how you're feeling psychologically in that moment. And we know that, you know, for example. When we sleep at night, whether you have a penis or a clitoris, you experience four to five erections per night as you cycle in and out of REM sleep, right? And so, you know, that's also another arousal non-concordant situation, right? There are studies of nocturnal tumescence in, in people with clitorises? Yes, the same exact thing happens. I always figured it was probably true, but I had never seen that. Oh, that's so exciting to know. Yes, you know, morning wood is for everyone. So... <laughs> All the stuff that we've been talking about, you know, with the the dual control model and understanding the accelerator and the brake, how can that help people to improve their sex lives? How can having a better understanding of your brain on sex help to unlock more pleasure? I mean, the simplest way is just to start with like an off the top of your head list of what are some things that activate my accelerator? What are the things that my brain interprets as sex related stimuli? And for some people, this is going to be very easy and they can like just immediately know it is this smell, this touch, this taste, this sound, this person. Someone I talked to yesterday was like the forearms of this partner I am with now, not the forms of anybody else I've ever been with. But for some reason, this person's forearms. Sex-related stimulus. And then and then you make a list of the things that hit the brakes. And as Ian Kerner writes in his brand new book, which he writes about your book a lot, by the way. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> if you've does. read it, but like you're like all over it. For a lot of people, the the list of accelerator hitting things is it's a few things. And then your list of things that hit the brakes is like you could spend four days just like listing the stress, the overwhelm, the 
kids, the, your parents, your family, your whole spending the whole first two decades of your life being lied to about what sex is for and who you're supposed to be as a sexual person. And you're not allowed to experience pleasure and trauma and neglect and all that stuff. And sort of the idea that love is dangerous if you got taught that in your family of origin. So like, it's just goes on forever. I wish it were like as simple as that. And then you just start like addressing the stuff on your breaks list. Unfortunately, there is another level of complexity, which is that the way our brains interpret any stimulus varies depending on the context. And there is now a really rich body of research, mostly on non-human mammals, but also a little bit on humans now, about the ways our brains change our perception of a sensation based on the context. My favorite example is tickling. I know tickling is not everybody's favorite, but if you're already like in a hot and heavy, turned on, playful, aroused state with a certain special someone whom you really trust and enjoy, and they tickle you, that your brain could easily interpret that as playful and good and lead to other things. But if you're in the middle of a fight with that exact same certain special someone and they tickle you, not not so much. More, more like you want to punch him in the face a little bit, right? And it's the same certain special someone. It's the same tickling sensation on the same part of your body. But the way your brain interprets that sensation is opposite because of the context. And there's all nerdy stuff about the affective keyboard or the nucleus accumbens shell, blah, blah, blah. But the main thing is to know that it's normal, that if your partner touches you in that special way, in that special spot today, and you're in a great state of mind, and so your knees melt... They might touch you in the same way, in the same spot tomorrow when you're feeling like stressed and overwhelmed. And instead of your knees melting, you're like, could you just go do the laundry? That's normal because our response to any sensation depends on the context in which we experience it. So step two, after you make the basic list of like, here's what hits my accelerator, here's what hits my brakes, is what are the contexts in which my brain is most likely to interpret a sensation as safe, fun, sexy, and pleasurable? For most people, vary tremendously, of course. There's no saying that too often. People vary so much from each other, and they change across their lifespan. But for most people, it's usually going to be a context that is full of trust and affection and not least, it's explicitly erotic. Everything you just said there is why you can't give one-size-fits-all sex advice, right? Because everyone's different, and they change. Yeah, and that's also why you can't just say at the beginning of a relationship, we're going to establish sexual compatibility, and we're good to go. No, you need to focus on maintaining sexual compatibility, because your body changes, what feels good during sex changes, what you want out of sex, what you need, what you're physically able to do, all of these things change. And so it's this ongoing conversation. And it's also, you know, trying different things at different points in your life might work better for you, right? Yeah. Yes. So yeah, when the kids leave the house, it's all going to be different. <laughs> well, it, it's certainly going to be different and for better or for worse. Depends on the situation. For better or worse. <laughs> right. But it's going to change because the context changed in a huge way. Absolutely. Now, we have much more to discuss, including how to prevent stress from killing your sex life, dealing with body image issues, and tips for maintaining lifelong sexual passion. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Sex and Psychology podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Promescent. Promescent is here to help you get better in bed. 
check out their Vitaflux supplements, which aim to enhance sexual health by increasing libido, sexual desire, and orgasm satisfaction in men and women alike. Vitaflux can also help to increase erection strength in men and vaginal lubrication in women. Promescent's other sexual wellness products include their signature delay spray, which can help men last longer in bed, a female arousal gel that heightens sensitivity, and a line of personal lubricants that come in several varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. We're back. My guest today is award-winning author Emily Nagoski, author of the massive bestseller, Come As You Are. Before the break, we were talking about sexual desire. And sexual desire is one of the most commonly reported sexual problems. In fact, in some representative surveys, we see that sexual interest or lack of sexual interest is actually the single most common sexual complaint reported by both men and women, although women are more likely to report it than men are. But I think that's important to point out because a lot of people don't think of low sexual desire as a common problem for men because they think men always want sex. But the reality is that a lot of men do struggle with low sexual desire. And in the heterosexual couples who seek therapy around a desire differential, it's just as likely that the man in that straight relationship is going to report the lower desire as it is that the woman will. And that's a crucial point. And I believe Kristen Mark talked about that on the podcast recently because she's done some research looking at that, finding that, you know, desire discrepancies are not gendered in the way that people assume that they are. And the person who has lower desire or higher desire can be of any gender or any sexual orientation. But I think the fact that this is such a common problem has led a lot of people to look for the quick fix or, you know, the the easy way out, right? A lot of people just want to take a pill to boost their desire. Pharmaceutical companies are chopping at the bit because they see massive profit potential. So, you know, what's your take on you know, whether you think there's a role for medication in boosting sexual desire, or if you think that that's, you know, something primarily where we need to look at psychological interventions. Yeah, I get why people want there to be a pill, especially when I'm like, I can't answer your question without giving you like 40 paragraphs of affective neuroscience. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> like, I don't want to, I would love it to be as simple as like, just take a pill and your desire will, and you can turn off your brakes with a pill and you can activate your accelerator with a pill and have it be as easy as that. I understand why people want that. And fact number one, no drug that has ever been tested actually is effective. Among the most successful drugs that have been tested and actually approved by the FDA, approximately 10% of the straight, premenopausal, 90% white, not on any medications, including not on birth control, and with no history of depression or anxiety or other mental health issues. So that's, you know, such a big population. It's not a big population. That's almost nobody. Among those people, 10% experienced like genuine improvement that could be attributed to the medication. And I would love to know more about which 10% that is, because that might tell us something really important about the mechanism of the medication, that it works well for this little tiny population. And for everybody else, it does not do anything and has some pretty life-impacting side effects. 
So drugs don't work. But also, the more I read the research about, like specifically on couples who sustain a strong sexual connection over the long term, many decades into a relationship, they self-identify as having extraordinary sex. Desire does not show up anywhere on the list. In my 2020 revision and update of Come As You Are, chapter seven is the desire chapter. And its primary message was, okay, so there's spontaneous desire, which is the experience of desire that appears in anticipation of pleasure. And, but there's also responsive desire, which emerges in response to pleasure. So like the sensation and the arousal and the enjoyment comes first, and the desire emerges in response to that pleasure. And that's normal and true. And the more you can like embrace responsive desire in your life, the better off you're going to be in the long term. But in the 2015 version, I was like, I know people really want spontaneous desire. So here are some tips on how to get there if you're struggling. I removed all the how to get to spontaneous desire stuff from the new version because Magnificent Sex by Peggy Klein-Plotz and Dana Maynard came out. And her work over the last decade or so on optimal sexual experiences and magnificent lovers, people who self-identify as having sex that makes them feel plugged into the universe, like connected to the divine, that kind of sex. People who have that kind of sex do not talk about desire at all. They talk about pleasure. So suppose early in a relationship, this is the standard narrative, right? Early in a relationship, you've got that new relationship energy. It's activating the accelerator. The brakes are like, I, I got nothing to say because we're in love, friend. <laughs> so you've got that energy. And so you're experiencing a lot of spontaneous desire. It's very easy to experience spontaneous desire. And then five or 10 years later, maybe not so much. And you feel like what was happening at the beginning of the relationship is what's supposed to happen, like I guess all the time. And that because there has been a change, there's now something wrong. And that's another judgment in the same way that like, just because women are different from men doesn't mean women are broken. Just because your sexual desire experience is different from how it used to be doesn't mean it's wrong now. It doesn't mean it's broken. It's just different. And you have to work more actively to create a context that allows your brain to access sexual pleasure. So here's my goal in life is to create a world where people aren't worried about desire anymore. People where that is not the complaint people bring. They don't talk about how they don't want sex to their therapist. They talk about how they don't enjoy the sex that is available to them in this context. Because it's pleasure that matters more. If you put pleasure at the center of your definition of sexual well-being, all the other pieces will fall into place. It might not be straightforward or easy, but everything will happen. And if you try for desire, there's a thing called the ironic process, where the harder you try to get something, the more difficult it becomes. It shows up in the orgasm process, and it also shows up in your desire for desire. The more you judge your experience of desire or lack of desire, the more that judgment hits the brakes and makes it more difficult for you to want or like sex. So there's a couple of questions that I suggest people ask themselves and talk about with their partner in order to reframe the conversation. The first question is, what is it that I want when I want sex? 
because it, it's, it's not just orgasm. You could do that by yourself. So what is it that you want when you want sex with another person or even specifically with this other person? And what is it that you don't want when you don't want sex? One of my favorite stories from Peggy Kleinplatz is she has a couple come in and partner A says, you know, I'd be perfectly satisfied if we never had sex again. The only reason I'm here is because my partner really wants to have sex. And I guess that matters to me, but I really like, I never want to have sex again. And Peggy asks, okay, so tell me more about the sex you don't want. <laughs> and in general, clients in a therapist's office there because of a problem with desire are going to describe what Peggy calls dismal and disappointing sex. And here's the shocking thing. It is normal not to want sex you don't like, right? So she, as the therapist, will say, well, you know, I rather like sex, but if I were having that sex, I would not want it either. Let's normalize that it is normal not to want sex you don't enjoy. And so Peggy's question is, what kind of sex is worth wanting? What is it that I want when I want sex? And then what is it that I like when I like sex? And the question that has to go with is, it, what is it that I don't like when I don't like sex? Those questions force you to go beyond just, I just, I just want sex, as though that's like a very specific thing. It is a vague, it's like we put our bodies in the bed and we think that's the thing that is the point of it. But there, think about all the things we have to do. We have jobs. We might have kids. We might have other family members to pay attention to. We might have friends we want to spend time with. God forbid we just want to watch some fucking Netflix and then take a nap, right? Like we have so many other things we could be doing with our time. What happens when we put our bodies in the bed with our partner and roll around naked and lick each other and bite each other and scratch each other and put parts of our bodies inside parts of our partner's bodies? What's going on there that makes that worth doing instead of all the other things we could be doing with our time? It is not just sex. There's something happening there that's really powerful and important. And the couples who sustain a strong sexual connection are not the ones who constantly can't wait, who are like horny for each other and want to put their tongues in each other's mouths. They're the ones who really love and trust. They like each other. They trust each other. They're really good friends. And it matters to them. They know that it makes an important impact in their relationship, that they stop doing all these other things that are frankly very important, you know, and some of them are not that important, but they're very fun and do this instead. Yep. Does that make sense? It does. And I think that's all great practical advice on how we can sort of reframe these conversations. And, you know, it's about having the sex that's worth having. And, and I've sort of yes. heard this shift in the narrative and it's something that I've noticed has also occurred in my own communication about this in, in recent years where we talk more about, well, if you want to have more sex, you need to have more pleasurable sex to begin with. Because the thing that's really going to yeah. spark your desire for it is if you're doing something you really like and enjoy. You know, <laughs> it, it, right. it makes sense like with anything in life. If it's not a great experience, you're not really going to want to keep doing it. So let's see how we can make that experience more pleasurable. Right. And like, it's the same is true for like putting sex in your calendar, scheduling it. People are like, no, it should be spontaneous. It's not romantic. My partner doesn't want me enough if they have to schedule it and can't just like initiate spontaneously. 
And for me, like nothing that I really care about happens unless it has a place on my calendar. Yep. <laughs> like everything has to be on the calendar because like, again, I have a lot of things I could be doing with my time. And this is one thing that matters enough for me. Like I love the Jesus out of my husband. And so he gets space on my calendar, time for him and only him where all we're going to do is like be naked and play fun games and enjoy each other and laugh and not even let the dogs in the room. Like that is the most romantic thing I can imagine someone doing for me is being like, I'm going to stop doing everything else and we're just going to do this. Ugh. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So let's talk about some other tips for improving your sex life, building healthier sexual relationships. And one that I alluded to earlier is the importance of body image and being comfortable mm -hmm. in your own skin. Again, this is something that is true across gender and sexual orientation. Yes, body image issues, we tend to hear them more often from women than men in the research, but there are a heck of a lot of men and especially gay identified men who experience body image concerns and that can lead to sexual difficulties such as not feeling desirable, being really distracted during sex, only having sex under really limited circumstances such as while wearing some clothing or only with the lights completely off or sometimes they just avoid sex entirely. So what can people do to cultivate better body image. I know like it's one of these things that's easier said than done, you know, where you say work on your body image, but how do you actually go about doing that? Yeah. Uh, fortunately, this is one of those places where there are evidence-based interventions specifically for this that work with a wide variety of populations. My favorite starting place is with a mirror. You stand in front of a mirror as close to naked as you can tolerate naked if you can. And you look at what you see there and you write down everything you see that you like. And of course, the first thing that's going to happen in your head is going to be crowded with all the stuff you have been taught to be critical of about the shape of whatever and the cottage cheese on the back of your wherever and like all the things. That's fine. You can have those thoughts literally any other time if you want to. Right now, you're going to set them aside and you're just going to notice the things you like. If it is your eyelashes write that down. If it is your spirit, because you can see it in your smile, write that down. If it's your ankle bones and your kneecaps, you write that down. Or your forearm. Right. Or your forearm. And then you do it again the next day. Your nail beds are looking really good today, right? And then you do it again the next day. And then again the next day. And you will gradually begin to recognize the miracle that your body is without seeing it through the filter of all the lies you have been told about it. You'll become inoculated against future lies too, so that when somebody judges your body, you'll be like, oh no, wait, I really, I, I really like that part of my body. And if this person doesn't like that part of my body, that's a good reason for me not to let them have sex with me. So that's a really good starting place. Another is um, media sort of literacy or like like doing a declutter of the media you consume if it makes you feel worse don't in the porn you watch in the tv shows you watch in the youtube videos you watch if it makes you feel bad about yourself and i know like the first time i talked about this somebody says but what if that's really satisfying like the like 
kind of self-hatred that gets generated. Like, cool, I get that. And if you are not ready to let that go, just begin to notice that that's a thing you're doing to your brain. Recognize that when you sort of get that satisfaction out of feeling worse about yourself, is that activating the accelerator and making it easier to want and like sex? Or is it hitting the brake and making it more difficult? So however satisfying in the moment it might be, like like chewing on a cold sore or like picking at a scab, I understand that that's satisfying, but is it is it making your sex life better? You're making a choice right there. And if you can gradually shift to media consumption that like none of it makes you hate yourself, how great would that be? <laughs> that would be amazing. So yeah, I, I think that's all great advice, very practical suggestions on you know ways you can get that process started. And again, of course, different things might work for different people. Some people, it's going to be yes. a much heavier lift than it is for others, depending on where they're coming from. But it's really important to find that way to feel comfortable in your own skin, because we know it can just have this really devastating impact on your sex life for a lot of people. There's a reason why there's half a chapter on it in Come As You Are and a whole chapter on it in Burnout, because it is that important, because it uses up that much of our mental energy and is that much of an obstacle between us and a life that feels deeply satisfying and joyful. Yeah. And something else you talk about, especially in your book, Burnout, is this whole idea of stress and how that impacts our sex lives. Because, you know, so many people have a hard time, like, figuring out how to manage it. And, and you offer a lot of different practical suggestions in your books. But what is some takeaway? You know, let, let's tease people a little bit. The most important thing to recognize is that the process of dealing with the stress in your body is almost always going to be separate from dealing with whatever it is that activated the stress in your body. So we evolved to have our stress be activated in response to life threats like being chased by a lion. And the correct response to being chased by a lion is to run. And so the stress response is all about like running or beating the shit out of somebody or making some sure somebody still likes you, the fawn response or shutting down the freeze response. Like these are survival strategies in life threat situations. Our stressors, we're, we're almost never chased by lions these days, alas. So our stressors these days tend to be things like the pandemic or your kids or the douchebag at work or traffic, right? And like, what is the correct, appropriate way to deal with traffic? Like you sit in it and you wait and your body is flooding with all the adrenaline and stress juice that like is, is telling your body to run or beat somebody up. And like, that is not appropriate and not helpful. So when you get home finally from your commute, like you have dealt with the stressor. Yay. But you haven't dealt with the stress in your body. Your body needs you to do something to complete the stress response cycle. All the processes in our bodies are cycles with a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? The breath has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Everything in our bodies is like that. Digestion is a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you know, if you get stuck in the middle, some not so great things can happen. Mm -hmm. Rest and activity is a cycle. We are not designed to rest all the time, nor to work all the time. We're designed to oscillate. 
into rest and back into activity. We're designed even in connection, a biological drive, right? We will literally die without adequate connection, but we're designed to oscillate into connection and back to autonomy and into connection and back to autonomy, which is why sometimes you can be like locked in your house with your favorite person on earth and be like, I have to get away from you. It's because your body is like full and it needs some time to process and digest. The short way to say this is that wellness is not a state of mind. It is a state of action. It's having the freedom to move fluidly through the innate cycles built into your organic body. And there's a list of literally seven or 12 evidence-based strategies for completing the stress response cycle. And that's just chapter one. So it's complete the stress cycle, right? (laughs) Yes. And like just getting out of traffic or having a responsible conversation with your disliked colleague or like getting your child finally to put on their shoes doesn't complete the stress response cycle. You need to do something that tells your body you have come home now and your body is a safe place for you to be. Yep. And that ties back with what we were discussing in the beginning. There's not just this one like little easy, simple thing you can do to fix these issues. It requires a little bit more work than that. I wouldn't have to write books if it were simple. I know. Or if you could just prescribe a pill. So, you know. Right. (laughs) And that's why you need to read Emily's books. So can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about your work and maybe get a copy of one of your books or all of them? The books are available wherever books are sold. There's Come As You Are. I call it Come As You Are Red because the revised version has red banners at the top and bottom. So that's the one you want to look for. There's a little badge on that says revised and updated. It's Come As You Are is really good, but the new one is so much better. There's also the Come As You Are workbook. If you're like, I don't want to read 100,000 words of affective neuroscience and stories. I just want to tell, just tell me what to do. That's what the workbook is for. And then there's Burnout, which is a book I co-authored with my identical twin sister, Amelia, which again is available, I guess, kind of anywhere. You can get them signed if you order them through my local bookstore in East Hampton, Massachusetts, Book Moon Books, if you want to go to that webpage to get a signed copy. And starting in 2019, my sister and I have been making a podcast called The Feminist Survival Project. It was the Feminist Survival Project 2020, and we started it in November of 2019, thinking this is going to be a rough year with the election. There might even be a woman candidate, and that's going to be uncomfortable. We had no idea. (laughs) (laughs) And we have continued it because it has continued to be uh, important for listeners, but also it's really helpful for us to make something that we feel like is making it easier for people who share our vision of the world to get through the vicissitudes of, you know, life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for all the work that you do in helping us to get through life a little better and maybe make our sex lives a little better at the same time. So I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and all of Emily's fabulous books. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.